Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello and welcome to the Aquest Podcast, the easy listening funds industry podcast. I'm Danny Lawler from Aquest, and the guest co-host for this episode is Robert Taylor from the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. Rob, thanks for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks very much, Danny. It's funny introducing myself to someone that I've known for the last year and a half uh, through the work that I've been doing at IOSCO, but I'm Rob Taylor, and I've um, been in this industry for over 30 years, and i um, trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> no rush. No rush. No rush. No rush. And uh, so how did you end up with the, uh, with the FCA? Well, long story. I mean, I started out, uh, uh, well, I, I, I started out in the industry when I was about uh, 25, 26, working as a financial journalist, and then moved into, um, um, into the industry itself um, as a result of the fact that in those days, and I don't mind saying it, I just wanted to make some more money. And um, I was lured into it because I had already had all the registration requirements because I used to write a column on fixed income trading and that column gave advice. So my career uh, really moved through sales and marketing into management, into um, a position I had up until 2012, which was CEO of Climate Benson Bank. And um, when I left the bank, uh, I survived. I, I noted you, when I said 2012, I'd survived the credit crunch well and helped steer the bank uh, to some new owners at the time. And I was trying to figure out what my next step would be. I was thinking at the time I might go into academics, um, but the opportunity came along about a year after I'd left Clumber Benson, a year and a half, and, um, and at the FCA. Uh, to work um, in the industry, uh, to work as a supervisor of the industry. And I think when you think about the fact that in the UK there are so many firms out there that I really couldn't turn down the, the idea of having a bird's eye view of the industry as a whole. And after working in the industry and sometimes thinking to yourself, gosh, is, am I making the right decisions? Um, is everyone aware of these issues? Um, I wanted to know if um, everything was as, was as mixed up as I thought it was um, going into work for the FCA. The reality was, you know, I realized that everyone does things, and not, everyone has their forte. Some people do things really well in certain areas and do other things really poorly. Some people are in the, some firms are in the middle. Um, and there's a, there's a handful of firms who just keep their head below the water and hope no one finds out what's actually taking place in their businesses. But it's been a real eye-opener. It's also been a real privilege to have access to this kind of a view of, in terms of what's actually taking place out there. And an interesting time to be involved in the industry. Absolutely, yeah. And what is it about your job that you enjoy the most or that you're most passionate about? Well, I think the, the fact is, is that in the world of, of, of asset management overall, whether or not that's through a, a, an asset management company or through a... a uh, uh, a private portfolio manager. I think the interesting thing is is that we have lived through a period of low interest rates for the last 10 years. And what's been really most interesting is to see how firms have um, taken up the uh, mantle of trying to make certain that they're providing their clients with the best returns they possibly can. And sometimes that's meant that they've had to 
um, make some hard decisions as to whether or not they actually earn the fees that they uh, would like to charge. If there's some places in their um, charging structure that's really more client money, not uh, earnings for the firm. And I guess the the pleasure I have, it's not about finding the firms out, it's actually having the discussions with the firms about where some of those conflicts actually have sat and whether or not the way they're approaching it is the right way to approach it. I don't really get any pleasure. I haven't had any pleasure about having to tell um, a senior person off. Mm. But what I have had a lot of, um, uh, of pleasure out of is being able to um, talk openly with the senior people about the perception we have and what their perception is and trying to figure out what the best way forward with, with those uh, firms have or is. And then the last uh, year and a half, um, I've taken on a more global responsibility um, as a result of, uh, of taking on the chairmanship of, of C5, which is the Asset Management Committee at IOSCO. Yeah, and um, that's been a fascinating eye opener in terms of how the rest of the world operates as well. It's an interesting group, uh, the the investment management committee of, of IOSCO, the International Organization for Securities Commission. So, um, you have thirty plus members. So it's thirty five. Thirty five members. It's a full committee, um, and representing literally um, countries from every continent um, uh, on on the globe. Um, and again, uh, we've got a really interesting agenda right now. Sure. Um, in part due to uh, the work that we've been doing with the FSB at the same time. And in part, um, again, thinking about some of the new product areas that are just growing um, exponentially at this point and whether or not we, we need to um, take a look globally at what um, some of the issues affecting uh, various jurisdictions might be. Sure. And I suppose that the... the, the um the first of those items, the work that you guys are doing with the Financial Stability Board, mm-hmm. two distinct areas there. There's the liquidity risk management piece and then the piece about leverage. The liquidity risk management you guys published uh, in early February some recommendations and, and guidelines yeah. around that. Um, that sort of brings to an end that piece of work, is that right? That's right. So uh, that was a, a good year and a half um, of activity there to get that uh, work out. Um, you know, we had to actually agree globally with all of our colleagues what um, the right the right way forward in this space was. I think the interesting thing has been that we essentially, I think, decided that the best line of defense about a liquidity crunch as a result uh, and a potential um, dislocation of the market um, and potential financial instability, which is the basis of this work in the first place, the best line of defense is still within the hands of the portfolio managers. Mm-hmm. So we concentrated a lot of our work on liquidity management um, uh, activities um, uh, around things like uh, what people, what firms do in terms of disclosure to investors, what they do in the design process, what the redemption features were, but also what they would do in a crisis. Yeah, whether or not they have to suspend a fund. And whether or not the the oil of the system is well um, greased, yeah. Uh, sorry, the system is well oiled, meaning that um, does everyone know what they would do um, when they come into work? Is there a is there a scenario that they know they might actually have to pull a lever at some point and um, 
and say we might have to suspend the fund. I, yeah. And if I if I may, Danny, I think the thing that um, we we note with a lot of portfolio managers is that they often forget that the um, financial services industry has now become, in essence, a banker to small and medium-sized businesses. So if you think back to the consequences of the credit crunch in 2008, one of them has been that there there are um, not as many uh, uh, big investment banks that want to make markets in some of the less liquid securities, such as um, uh, small and medium-sized issues of corporate bonds. We also find that um, uh, because we've been in a low interest rate environment, a lot of investors and portfolio managers have hoovered up those bonds because the the bankers that don't want to give credit to those small and medium-sized corporates, those corporates are finding access to the credit market mm-hmm. as the best way of getting their working capital. Yeah. And the big concern has been that... Um, at some point, um, maybe investors in that space might want their money back faster than the funds themselves can provide it. Yeah. And what are what are we going to do? What's the market going to do? What are regulators going to do? And what we've tried to do is review what all the procedures should look like and um, make certain that portfolio managers, fund managers, know how to pull the lever if they have to. Yeah. But also... What happens before they get to that point? Are we? Do we see adequate disclosure? Do we see uh, adequate thought given in the design process of a fund about this particular issue, particularly if the fund is going to have um, less liquid securities in it as a result of, of what they're piecing together? Yeah, I think one of the key things I took from the, the recommendations and, and the messaging around that was really this piece about pulling the lever. So mm-hmm. are the portfolio managers ready to pull the lever when the time comes, if the time comes. And that might not be an easy thing to do if they are looking around and their peers haven't done it and they're going to be the first. <clears throat> so to make that decision, knowing that the consequences could be quite um, quite great for the fund and, and for the investors, um, I think it's to, to, to really bring that home and say that it's their responsibility. So get your procedures lined up, make it as objective as possible when the time comes. Mm-hmm. That it's not um, that you're not sort of scrambling around. It's not a, an off the cuff decision. It's something that you can sort of hit the procedures and you know, okay, the decision that we got to make is is suspend or whatever it is. So yeah. it's really to give the power to the to the managers and just let them know. So, you know, I think I think the the thing is is that a lot of portfolio managers and a lot of clients don't see suspension as possibly part of the normal process of managing portfolios. When I say normal, it shouldn't happen very often for the wrong reasons. But it should be seen as part of the process of, of managing um, portfolios, especially if the portfolio is has less liquid securities in it. Yeah. And the point here is, is that uh, the clients themselves need to be aware that that's a possibility. And I think most of the big institutional investors understand that. But when we're getting into the retail space, mm. do they just assume that a portfolio can be liquid within um, within a day after a redemption um, notice has been given? Or do they realize that it could take a while in certain market circumstances? And uh, and in certain um, extreme circumstances, a portfolio might, manager might need to suspend a fund until it uh, the, the market calms down and they can actually um, uh, make a li- an orderly li- liquidity, um, uh, sorry, make 
they're finals liquid in an orderly process. I think, and I think all of us at IOSCO decided that that's best for investors so that their value is also protected and they're not actually getting um, liquidity off of the back of a market that's tanked. Yeah, yeah. So you guys have done an awful lot of work on that liquidity piece and, and you've, mm-hmm. you've published your report there. So what's next up then in the FSB work is the, is the leverage work. Yeah. It's probably a little bit earlier stage, but a, a tricky one. That's a, a pretty... Yeah, it's tricky, and, and uh, it's tricky to get 35 people around the table to see it from the same perspective. Sure. Um, we're dealing, so there, there were 12 recommendations that the FSB made, and we're dealing with one of those 12 right now in this project. That has to do with just having a global measure of leverage. So that just at the very basic level, um, we know in our jurisdictions uh, how much leverage is out there and then how much meaningful leverage is out there. So there's a lot of leverage in the system that isn't necessarily that important to worry about, yeah. i.e. Um, hedging activities in your portfolio um, when you actually have positions that you're actually um, uh, hedging off against, um, netting as well. But at the end of the day, there are certain funds out there that um, – could be highly leveraged and could also have a level of leverage that could, and I keep saying could, could. impact mm-hmm. um, the stability of the financial system. Have you, have you a sense for, I know it's early days, for where that might land in terms of what kind of a measure might I have a sense, but I don't think it's time for you to share it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what sort of timeline are you working to on that project? We're looking to be actually a lot more opaque um, right. towards the end of this summer. So okay. um, if you want to do another podcast, then I'm happy to do it. Okay, I'm going to keep you to that. Okay. Uh, the other piece of work then is, is uh, the ETF work that that's you mentioned. Right. Yeah. So that's um, obviously we're seeing huge assets going into the ETFs. And from a few regulators and, and IOSCO as well, uh, um, just raising a question as to what might go wrong in the future and maybe we could try and anticipate that in advance of uh, issues occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what's your plan for that project? Well, right now the committee is um, really doing a piece of discovery work. Okay. So I think you have to keep in mind that um, it's quite fashionable for everyone to worry about it because there's a lot of aspects of, this, of the ETF product that... Um, journalists don't understand, even regulators don't understand, and I'd even say that some of the participants in the market don't fully understand. So what's really important at this stage is for us to get the issues on the table that we think need um, more clarification and need more examination as well. So in terms of the discovery work, um, we're looking at this in terms of what's taking place within the issuers of the ETFs, what's taking place on the, uh, with the um, market makers, the liquidity providers, the appointed reps, mm. and then what's taking place on the exchanges, and ultimately I think also what's taking place in the distribution chain. I don't, I'm not trying to set, send out alarms on this because I don't think anyone has done a thorough look at this globally. We've got, um, we've got entities that have looked at it within their own jurisdictions or across the European community, for instance. But what we have now at IOSCO, we have the ability to take the knowledge that exists in the U.S. On this, in this market, the knowledge that exists in Asia, and also the knowledge that exists in Europe. Keep in mind that these markets have all 
develop slightly differently and at different speeds. So the American market and the Asian market has a lot more retail participation yeah. in it than the European market. And the European market really has grown up around an institutional level of, of uh, investor activity. Um, the other factor is, is that there's much more uh, over-the-counter trading in the European market than exchange-traded activity. So there, there's differences in the markets yeah. themselves. But what we're trying to look at, again, is, is what are there high-level um, issues that IOSCO needs to take a global view on before uh, regional and local jurisdictions sure. um, get more involved in it. So you're really going into the, the detail of the... A lot more than I thought, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. So, the, so in that discovery phase is probably quite a, a meaty piece of work. Well, it's turning out to that. I, when, I, when I agreed to do it, I thought it would be a quick end. Uh-huh. Right. But the reality is looking like this is going to take us through uh, towards um, the latter part of this year as well yeah. to, to, to be able to really articulate um, the, the areas that we might want to take a closer look at. And by the way, I'm not even at this stage able to suggest that there's a lot of um, issues or problems sure. in the product. Um, I think all of us have quite an open mind, but it's actually being able to um, describe uh, uh, for IOSCO where we think there might need to be further work yeah. that, say, other um, committees at IOSCO might get uh, more involved in. Yeah. So I, I suspect that IOSCO will be looking at ETS for a bit longer than 2018. Um, into 2019 and um, uh, as well. Yeah, and I know some of the some of the the messaging around that kind of work from from different organisations has been very much it's fact finding and understanding. Yeah. It's not necessarily a rule making process that we're we're jumping into. But from an industry perspective, they're a little bit sort of squiffy about this because oh, regulators sure. start to look at something and they they tend to. It tends to lead to another thing, which leads to another thing. Yeah. Is there a good way for industry to to sort of participate in this process and have you guys through discovery and understanding? Well, I, I mean, I think one of the things that IOSCO is quite good at is getting industry feedback. So the reason I'm actually here in Dublin today is because the Central Bank of Ireland has hosted an event here where we've actually been meeting um, members of the industry in those three um, sectors. So we've, as I said, we're looking at issuers, we're looking at... Um, market makers, liquidity providers, um, and we're looking also at uh, exchanges. So, A, the industry can participate in the direct fashion when we, when we ask um, for people to come and, and meet with us. But then once we have uh, a, a way forward for IOSCO, mm-hmm. the industry should always look at the papers and make certain that they're feeding back to us when we consult in terms of what our thoughts actually are in this space and what the issues actually are. Now, I I don't think right now um, that the, when you say the industry, there's a number of different components of this. And it does make um, getting to the bottom quite complicated in the sense that um, even the three distinct groups that have a stake in effective ETFs um, break down into even smaller groups. Sure. And remember that securities market regulators have a responsibility to both make certain that markets are healthy, but also that consumers uh, are protected, that investors are protected. And it's a very fine balance between 
um, you know, putting a piece of guidance or rule into a particular side of this equation that might impact the other side. Yeah. And so we've got to be very mindful that uh, this is this is about proportionality, about what's really um, uh, at stake and where there really could be problems. But as I say, it's way too early to tell if there's any um, any direct output of this yet or not. I have to say it's fascinating, and every time I th- I thought that I understood the issue, it's like peeling back an onion, and there's another layer that yeah. you didn't expect to see. Actually, I call it more of a shallot because <laughs> it's it's less. Um, it's less readable uh, than a, than an onion. Uh, yeah, they're more more nuanced. More I know, nuanced, I, I, yeah. I, because I, even within ETF providers, different providers have different views on things like transparency and things like you know physical versus synthetic and, and what have you. So, trying to piece that together and come up with uh, a uniform view is uh, is not going to be easy. Well, no, it's not. That's why you're not seeing, Rob. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not <laughs> going to be easy, and I wasn't really anticipating it to um, to be as complex as as it is. But you know, we see things when we when we operate in this environment. We see everything the way one would see it in their home jurisdiction. Sure. And uh, and in the UK, it seemed like it was a much uh, more manageable uh, issue than it became when. We started getting more global, so yeah. uh, so I, uh, we have to keep our mind on the fact that this is about global um, view rather than just a European or UK uh, view on this whole um, issue. Before we go down the road of of telling everyone uh, if if we think there's something that we need to improve. Well, thanks very much, Rob. We have run out of time. Pleasure. We've exhausted the attention span of the average podcast listener and funds industry enthusiast. So thank you very much for co-hosting this podcast and good luck with your future work, particularly on the ETFs and on the leverage because they're, they're both complex and, uh, and difficult issues but extremely important at the same time. So good luck with that. Thank Thanks you very much for co-hosting. Thanks. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on RECs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.